It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, 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 hi. Sorry to keep you. That's all right. You ready to go to work? Oh my God. I'm so ready to go to work. Batman and Robin, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, Mr. Burns and Wayland Smithers. This week, America added a new name to the list of high-profile sidekicks. With 80 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideaux, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, who is Kamala Harris? Presidential frontrunner Joe Biden now has his running mate, and as far as many are concerned, an heir apparent as well. It feels like the word we've heard the most since the decision was announced is first. The first black woman on a major party ticket, the first Indian American as well, the first Democrat from the west of Texas to ever be on a presidential ticket, the first time the Democratic ticket has not had an Ivy League graduate on it since 1984. The list goes on. Today, we'll look at the Kamala Harris behind the headlines, at her core beliefs, we'll find out what her time as Attorney General of California tells us, and whether the new look for the Biden ticket will affect the polls. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, how's your week been? My week has been pretty good. I was excited to finally get this news of the VP pick. We've all been sitting around waiting for it. I couldn't read another article assessing every last person who could possibly be a contender. So I'm glad we know it's Harris and excited for covering the campaign as it gets underway in full swing. Yes, you may not have to read another Val Demings profile for a little while. John, how's your week been? It's been good. It's been quite busy, but the good kind of busy. The announcement came Tuesday night, so that was a furious bit of writing, and then Wednesday was trying to piece it all together. And uh, yeah, I'm also excited to cover the home stretch of the campaign. And you even had electricity at home by the time the Veep pick was announced, so that was good. Yeah, we, we did. We did. We had electricity restored. That was nice. It's a luxury. Okay, well, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. Kamala Harris has been heavily scrutinised over the past few years. Ever since arriving in the Senate, even before she announced her run, she's been seen as a future presidential hopeful. But when your every move is seen as part of a presidential campaign strategy, that can make you cautious. What does she actually think? Our former Lexington columnist David Rennie, who's now our bureau chief in Beijing, started covering Kamala Harris before that kicked in. He met her on the Senate campaign trail in 2016. David, I remember when we were both based in Washington in 2016 and you were the bureau chief and writing the Lexington column, you rushing off to California to write a profile of Kamala Harris. Why did you go and do that? Well, it was kind of a Washington story. I was at a dinner party uh, at an embassy and someone pretty senior in Obama world uh, said that 
uh, President Obama, when he looked at the current crop of Democrats coming up, the one that really impressed him and had sort of star quality for the future was the Attorney General of California, who was a shoo-in to become a U.S. senator in October. And it's a kind of classic gambit in American political journalism that if you think you've spotted a future rising star, you get onto the campaign trail and you spend a couple of days with them. And you spent a bit of time with Harris in an elementary school, if I remember. So I watched her at an elementary school and then also kind of pressing the flesh uh, in in a sort of very bobo kind of uh, region of, of, of San Francisco. And then we had an interview in a fairly noisy coffee shop over, I think, iced coffee. So as a general matter, um, I think we all know that the country needs to heal. We need to, to uh, unify or reunify. <laughs> the, the, the tools that we are going to require and, and need to implement are going to be the three T's. This is how I talk about it. But truth, transparency, and trust. What's interesting is clearly 2016 was a very different election. We didn't yet have a President Trump. But the rows that were already dogging that election about people who believe the police tended to be in the right versus Black Lives Matter, those were already live issues. And so now I think in 2020, as you have, for example, the Republican Party trying to work out whether to criticise Kamala Harris as too left wing or actually a sort of pro-police sellout who African-Americans are never going to trust, it was interesting that actually she was ready to engage with those questions even at the time. I mean, I put it to her bluntly, how do you build coalitions in a world where you have people who support the police from Blue Lives Matter who simply see nothing in common with people from Black Lives Matter? Whether you, the zero-sum approach that you're either in favour of one side or the other, as though they're enemies, by the way, or as though they are polar opposites, which they are not which is why I reject the notion that it's one against the other and that there's this zero-sum game, because if you understand each group, you will understand that's just not the truth. I have long believed that it's a myth, for example, to say that the black community does not want law enforcement. That is a myth, to say that the black community does not want law enforcement. It does. It doesn't want excessive force. It doesn't want racial profiling. And then in parentheses, we should say, and who does? <laughs> mm-hmm. But it does want law enforcement. She also told you a bit about her decision to become a prosecutor in the first place, which was something that counted against her in the Democratic primary. That's right. She's been through this before. When I decided to become a prosecutor, for you know, many members of my family, I had to defend that decision like one would a thesis. <laughs> but what I said then and what I absolutely maintain today after a career as a prosecutor is this. Law enforcement has a profound and direct impact on the most vulnerable among us and has as its responsibility and as its job to be a voice of the most vulnerable and voiceless. I said, back when I made this decision, there is no doubt a role for those of us who are going to be on the outside, either on bended knee or breaking down the door. There is also a role for those of us who want change to be on the inside at the table where the decisions are being made. The other thing that she talked about was how she was a trial lawyer to her core and that her view of how to engage with the public is you treat them like a jury and you can't just ask the jury to believe on trust that this side are good people, that side are bad people, that you have to give them facts and make a case. Now, I think one of the most fascinating questions is whether that kind of talking to the jury, making a case with facts and evidence approach can work at all in the even more painfully divided America of 2020. 
Charlotte, I thought that what then AG Harris had to say about political change needing people both on the inside and the outside was really interesting there. What do you make of her as a Veep pick? In many ways, it's not that surprising a Veep pick, right? As Fassman, I think, points out in this week's paper. She's in many ways very similar to Biden. One of the interesting things about Harris is that she often talks about progressive ideas in moral terms, but throughout her career, particularly in California, she has also spoken as a technocrat. So in California, she would describe a specific public policy as being a good investment, and she would present data and evidence for why it's important to pursue a particular goal. She would really make her case as a technocrat. And I think Democrats in general have struggled with whether they're kind of cold-blooded and wonky, like an Al Gore or even Hillary Clinton. And then Republicans, in contrast, can often portray them as being too emotional and radical, like a Bernie Sanders. And I think that in a general election, one thing that will be interesting is if Harris and Biden together can talk about progressive goals and about their goals as being both evidence-based and as having a moral imperative. Fasman, Charlotte mentioned in passing there that you've written in this week's Economist that in many ways she's quite like Joe Biden. You wouldn't know that necessarily from the coverage, the headline coverage at least, which has all been, you know, the first African-American woman on a major party ticket, the first Asian-American on the top of a major party ticket, etc. Why is she similar in your view to the 77-year-old white rather centrist dad or granddad who's at the top of the ticket? I think they are both instinctively centrists and pragmatists, as Charlotte said. I think they approach problems the same way. I think they're both quite comfortable with transactional politics and being on the inside. And I think in that way, while demographically she fills a gap for Joe Biden, she could help to boost African-American and non-white and young turnout, especially in battleground states. Intellectually, she's much more of a sort of complement than an opposite. And I think it shows, as Charlotte said, in how she approaches problems morally and technocratically. I think Biden does that as well. A problem, though, with her is that, of course, she didn't have that successful campaign. And one can pick apart the reasons for that. But one clear problem is that it wasn't really clear what she stood for. She backed Medicare for all, then she backtracked, and then she said, something along the lines of that she was supporting the public option. People couldn't quite get their head around her record on criminal justice. She had been very tough in California, but then in her campaign, she said she wanted to do away with private prisons and mandatory minimum sentences. And for both her and for Biden, there's this question about what they really would do in office. How progressive are they, or to use Republicans' terms, how radical are they, How much would they seek to upend the system? And I think that that's a big task for them in the convention and after is to really try to stake out what they would do if they were to uh, if they were to seize the White House and what that would mean for America's economy, for American education, immigration, for a whole raft of issues to really try to clarify that. Yeah, I will say I had a conversation this week with the president of a public sector union in California who had worked with Senator Harris and A.G. Harris on a number of labor issues. And this official said that Harris tended to be somewhat rehearsed and often appeared all over the map on issues, but she also really listened. 
And the fact that she took different positions, he saw as a sign of pragmatism and working through issues rather than a sign of shallowness. I will say also one more thing, one way in which Harris is similar to Biden. I saw her back when we were still covering campaign events in person. I saw her at the Iowa State Fair and then at a couple of mostly African-American churches in South Carolina. She's very good in person in a similar way that Biden is and that she connects with people one-on-one very well. All right. Thank you both for that. In a moment, we'll be looking back to Kamala Harris's time as Attorney General of California. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you really should be. You'll get the best offer on a new subscription by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. In the latest edition, you'll find a long read on China's economy, a fascinating piece on the stolen election in Belarus, and some tips on how to build a better quantum computer. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. Now, as a senator in the minority party, Kamala Harris has given us a clear idea of the way she handles herself politically, but not necessarily a reliable guide to what she'd do with real power. To find that out, you have to look back to the last office she held before becoming a senator, her six years as California's top lawyer. She's California's most innovative district attorney. Kamala Harris created a long overdue child assault unit, the first ever environmental justice unit. It's worth remembering that California is a state with 40 million people and a big economy. So state level officials there have powerful and complex jobs. Harris ran for the role in 2010 in a fiercely contested race. Her mantra was smart on crime. As attorney general, I'll target online sex offenders and set safety standards for social networking sites like Facebook. Because right now, they're just not safe. We need to get smart on crime. She embraced technology and data in policing, building an image as a modern top cop. And it made her a rising star in her party. The American dream belongs to all of us. She was invited in 2012 to address the Democratic National Convention. Stand together and vote together on November 6th for President Barack Obama. That's a dream we will put within reach of all our people. Thank you. But she's also been controversial. She used the criminal law to pursue parents of children who are truant from school. The goal was to get kids back into school and ensure poor and marginalised children still received an education. But the stories of harsh penalties used against some of the most vulnerable people in the state have hurt her reputation with progressives. I was curious about this large number of people we had who were homicide victims who were under the age of 25. In 2015, she spoke about truancy in California. So I commissioned a study in my office and quickly learned that 94% were high school dropouts. Harris is extremely comfortable with lists of numbers and litanies of data and with sweeping rhetoric. And I learned that of the habitually and chronically truant students, up to 40% were elementary school students, who in many cases were missing 50, 60, up to 80 days of a 180-day school year. One of Harris's roles on the Biden campaign will surely be to talk about race and policing in America. A key moment came in 2016, after the killings of unarmed black men Philander Castile in Minnesota and Alton Sterling in Louisiana, and then the killing of five police officers in Dallas amid the protests that followed. As a prosecutor, my heart is breaking. As the top law enforcement officer of this state, and as a black woman. 
The next day, Harris addressed the new racial and identity profiling advisory board that had been set up in her state. I suggest that we have been presented many false choices. We have talked about it in the context of criminal justice policy, rejecting that notion that you're either soft on crime or tough on crime, and we say, let's be smart on crime. As Attorney General, Harris was faced with challenges she would face again if Joe Biden is elected, especially in shaping the future of law enforcement and policing in America. I spoke with someone who worked with Harris when she was AG. Jill Habig was a special counsellor to her at the time and later helped run Harris's campaign for the Senate. My job, you know, I oversaw her healthcare, education and civil rights portfolio. None of those things would come up in most people's list of the things they think a prosecutor does. And that was by design. That was her goal. Jill, you were involved in the question of truancy that also became a hot button issue in the primary. Do you think the criticism of Kamala Harris over that was fair, unfair? I don't think it was accurate. The truancy effort was all about how do we actually hold systems accountable for actually helping children and their families. Kids who miss school as early as kindergarten, if they miss more than 10% of the school year, they fall off of the track in terms of learning to read, graduation rates, and everything else. And her point was that we would raise the alarm if these were white, wealthy kids who were suddenly missing school. But we have such low expectations of kids who are in poverty, kids of color, that we're not paying attention to the fact that there are so many children who, due to no fault of their own and often no fault of their families, uh, lack of access to services, transportation, those sorts of things, they're not making it to school. This is a problem, and we need to actually hold our systems accountable to make sure that we're getting kids to school. And I think it's actually a really good example of her approach, which is very pragmatic, very data-driven. She looks at what she thinks is going to be the right policy that's actually going to move the needle for people. And then she pushes, you know, she relentlessly pushes on, on those policy solutions. And so it's difficult to attack that as some ideological boogeyman because that doesn't really fit her. What is Senator Harris like as a boss? I mean, she's pretty busy at the moment, so she's not going to be listening to this podcast, I'd imagine. <laughs> so you can be as candid as you like. You know, did she ever throw stationery at you? Does she have a temper? No, she's actually smart and tough. Like She expects her staff to be prepared because she's prepared. The glimpses people see of her in public very much match who she is in, you know, long meetings talking about constitutional law and things like that. She loves puns, which I don't know if that has come out as much. There would often be pun competitions, which I was terrible at. I just sat back and laughed uh, at everyone else during those meetings. This is starting to sound like an Economist editorial meeting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the cooking obsession is real. Like there, I can't even tell you how many times a very serious substantive meeting would be interrupted for a lesson on how to properly roast a chicken or a discussion about what someone ate for dinner and how it was prepared. John, I thought that that phrase that Jill used about the low expectations that Kamala Harris thought people had for poor children in California when it came to things like school attendance was really interesting. It reminded me of that famous phrase that I think Michael Gerson wrote for George W. Bush about the soft bigotry of low expectations. 
she's not your classic San Francisco liberal, is she? I mean, what do you make of her record, both as chief prosecutor for San Francisco and as the state's attorney general? I think you're right. Her record as a prosecutor really made some progressives uneasy, and she never really picked up traction with them in the primaries. It's not just that she pursued the parents of children who were truant from school. She also resisted in order to ease California's prison overcrowding by releasing prisoners. She opposed marijuana legalization when it first came up in 2010 and 2012. She's since changed that position. She aggressively prosecuted a lot of misdemeanors. Her argument is that she was working to change the system from the inside, and she had a client, and that client was the state of California, and she couldn't always choose her position. That's fine, but I assume that when she takes the lead on race and policing, she will have to confront her record straight on. And how she does it and what she says about it is going to say a lot about the sort of governing she will do. To add to that, she does give progressives a lot of ammunition. In California as AG, in addition to what Fasman just pointed out, she did not support a ballot initiative that would have banned the death penalty. Her record in California was controversial even when she was in California. That being said, Donald Trump has shown evidence that he wants to make this a law and order election and that he wants to portray Democrats as being soft on crime. And I think it's much harder to do that with someone like Kamala Harris next to Joe Biden on the ticket. Yeah, I mean, in the Democratic primary, she was constantly fielding attacks from the left from her record. In the general election, if anything, she'll be attacked from the right, which puts a wholly different spin on her record as a prosecutor. I think it is worth remembering when you look at Harris's record that she was part of the wave of Democrats who included Joe Biden, who really did internalize the lessons of Nixon with his law and order election, and then with George H.W. Bush and the success of the Willie Horton ad, that Democrats could not seem soft on crime. And as someone who had an ascendant political career in California, who's a black woman, she was part of this generation of Democrats that wanted to be data-driven and tough on crime. And I think that as the party has evolved, you've seen Harris evolve with it. I think that's absolutely right. Had she been running for DA in 2016 or 2018, she may well have been a Kim Fox or a Larry Krasner or, or, or a progressive DA. But that option wasn't really available to her then. And so going back to her first run at DA of San Francisco, which is really has very insular, clubby politics, if you look at how she built a coalition to win, she had her campaign headquarters in a majority-minority low-income neighborhood, but she really worked assiduously to build support in San Francisco high society. She's not a community organizer like Barack Obama was, but she's been good throughout her career at coalition building and been very strategic about how to build support and where to build support. Right. Thank you both. We'll discuss the electoral consequences of the VP choice, if there are any, in just a moment. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Now, for the VP choice to matter in the long term, you also want to make it count in the short term. Political scientists have often argued there's little evidence that vice presidents sway races. 
But is that going to be true this time? Elliot Morris is our resident polling maven. I started by asking him about the state of the race. The top line seems pretty steady, and we don't have a lot of data to really say that the race has fundamentally changed basically at all since the latter half of June. The name of the game still on the election seems to be stability. And it's too early to have any polling that will tell us how the Kamala Harris pick has or hasn't affected Biden's chances. When you're the challenger, you have a few opportunities to really own the news cycle, and your Veep pick is one of those. So to that extent, you know, this is a significant news cycle event. On the other hand, my understanding is the political science research is fairly clear that Veep picks don't make an enormous difference to how presidential candidates fare. That's right. The political science is a bit slim here, though. So it's hard to know with any empirical evidence what the effects of vice presidential choices are. Our election forecasting model does have uh, one factor for the vice presidential candidate's home state, and you know, for that matter, the presidential candidate's home state too, because they get some slight bounces uh, in the states where they're from. Now, those bounces also seem to be a bit smaller if you're from a larger state like Kamala Harris's. Uh, but beyond that, beyond home state effects, the political science research is even thinner. We know sort of qualitatively and from some theoretical research that presidential candidates pick their vice presidents to signal to different groups of the party that they're with them, that, you know, we stand with you. And so Donald Trump's pick of Mike Pence in 2016 was seen as sort of a I stand with the evangelical statement from President Trump, a man who doesn't seem to follow the core tenets of evangelicalism uh, and needed this signal perhaps to, to really win them over. Um, but we can't really be sure if picking Pence helped him do that. It could be that they were so put off by Hillary Clinton that they would have voted for him anyway. So there's a large caveat here. Elliot, this is a pick that seems to have been broadly well-received among Democrats. Is there already data to support the notion that she's a good pick for Joe Biden? Well, she's a good pick, I guess, for two reasons. First, she's the most net favorable choice that he could have picked among the nominees that people know about. She had a 33 percentage point favorability rating to a 34 percentage point unfavorability rating in polling from Morning Consult earlier this month. In comparison, Elizabeth Warren had a more negative favorability rating. Some other of the candidates like Stacey Abrams and Susan Rice, most hadn't even heard of. And again, the ones who had heard of her rated her more unfavorable. Second, in the same morning consult poll, 61% of registered voters said they wanted someone with legislative experience. 50 said they wanted someone who's younger than Joe Biden. 30 said they wanted someone who's a person of color. Um, of, you know, of course, lower amounts that they wanted someone explicitly who was white. So, you know, maybe we don't put a whole lot of sock in the diversity questions. But she represents an experienced candidate who's young and could take over the reins of the presidency if something were to happen to Biden over the next eight years, presuming, of course, he, he gets reelected, which is no sure thing four years in advance. Charlotte, thanks to Armando Inucci's wonderful series Veep, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Selena Meyer. We're accustomed to thinking of this role of, of vice president as, in some senses, a bit of a joke, right? But were Joe Biden to win the presidency, he'd be 77. There's a decent chance that Kamala Harris might have to deputise for him at some point. So, you know, this is before we even get to her role in the election. This is a pretty serious business. 
I mean, there's clearly a huge chasm between Kamala Harris and Selena Meyer. And I think that you saw that when she gave her speech, accepting the role of being the vice presidential nominee and speaking about her career, about who she is as a person, and how she wants to run a campaign with Joe Biden. She's a commanding presence. She is able to speak about Biden in a human way because of her relationship with Bo, who had been the AG of Delaware while she was Attorney General of California. And she was a good advocate in the way that she spoke about Biden, the man he is, the president he would be. And I think that as a compliment to Biden, we've talked about the ways in which she's similar to Biden, but she also, of course, is a compliment in a variety of ways, and in part because she has that presence of a prosecutor that we've seen her display in the Senate and was certainly on display in her speech this week, that I think that she wants to establish herself as someone who is very much up for the job. There was a theme of competence running through her speech on Wednesday in Delaware with Joe Biden. I want to pick up on something from Elliot's discussion, though. It seems like there are two conflicting bits of poli-sci evidence at play here. One is that, as Elliot said, VP picks tend not to matter that much, that people don't decide on their choice because of who someone picks as vice president. But the other bit of evidence from 2008 and 2012 is that having an African-American on the ticket boosts non-white and specifically African-American and young voter turnout. So I suspect one of the things that factored into the Biden campaign's team in picking Senator Harris as vice president is that she would help with precisely those demographics that were unenthusiastic about Hillary Clinton and that seemed unenthusiastic so far about Biden himself. There had, of course, been a big campaign, a concerted effort to explicitly have Biden pick a woman of color. You had an effort by Black Voters Matter, which is one group to have him consider Black female candidates. I mean, this was really, if he hadn't chosen a woman of color, it would have at this point almost felt like a slight. One other point about the speech that was made this week is that it was the first time and definitely the most notable time that you saw this speech given by Biden and then by Harris that really would have had a ton of applause lines in it in any conventional year. And it was so strange to listen to this rallying speech and have it be silent. And I think it was the first real taste of how different it's going to feel in the run up to the election this time, when you have the candidates making the case in front of teleprompters, as they always do, but without voters there with them. And so I think that that will be a challenge in particular for this campaign. I have a suspicion that Biden and Harris will be better suited to doing that type of campaigning than President Trump will be, but we'll see. Yeah, I think that's true. President Trump is a very lively speaker in front of an audience. He feeds off their energy. Reading from a teleprompter, he often sounds somewhat droning. And in the combative atmosphere of the White House briefing room, as we've seen when he gets confronted with a challenge, he quits early. So I think that this pattern in which candidates are going to have to speak into a television camera without applause lines, without feeding off the energy of the crowd. I think Charlotte's right. It really will suit the Biden-Harris campaign better. Well, thank you both. Doing this has made me think that we ought to do an episode on Mike Pence at some point. It'd be quite hard to do because he's been quite tight-lipped during Donald Trump's presidency, but I still think maybe we ought to spend some time analysing his role in, in the Trump presidency. Before I let you go, however, I have a quiz. Last year, we published a story in The Economist about the rising importance of Asian Americans in American politics. 
Kamala Harris's African-American identity often comes to the fore, but of course, she's also an Asian-American, and she has an aunt who still lives in India. What city does Kamala Harris's aunt live in? This was mentioned in the article that Adam Roberts wrote last year. Which Indian city is Kamala Harris's aunt from? Chennai. I mean, this is just... Um... I'll say Hyderabad. I have absolutely no idea, but there's my guess. Oh, you get points for variety, Charlotte, but it was, in fact, Chennai. Fazman's right on that one. And Kamala Harris's aunt in Chennai is apparently great friends with the great aunt of a congresswoman who represents a district in Washington state. Who is that? Oh, that'd have to be uh, Jayapal, right? That is so impressive. Well done. I'm not going to give an alternate answer. You're right about that as well. Full marks for John Fassman. You're the winner of the quiz this week. This is neither here nor there, but outside my window, I'm currently watching a woodchuck eating a garden chair. (laughs) (laughs) My kid is really into rocks. And so there are two things that have happened. One is that he's into cooking and one that he's into rocks. And so the sort of tradition of the summer has been that he makes something that basically tastes like a block of sugar mixed with a little bit of cement layered onto cardboard. And then you have to eat it and pretend like it's delicious. And then the other thing is that he's become, he's decided that he wants to be either a geologist or a miner. And so it's like living with um, some sort of weird uh, like mole where you look outside and all of a sudden there are random holes all over the place. As the winner, I'm going to use my privilege to put a question to you two. I know this is an unlawful innovation, but I'm going to do it anyway. So if Kamala Harris becomes vice president, she will be the first black woman to serve in that office. She'll be the first Asian American, but she will not be the first non-white vice president. Who was? Oh. That is a really good question. I'm going to say straight up, I don't know the answer. I think you're, it's going to be something weird, like Dan Quayle is 124th American Cherokee or something like that. <laughs> As far as I know, Dan Quayle is not American Cherokee, but Herbert Hoover's vice president, Charles Curtis, was half Caw and grew up on the Caw Reservation in Kansas. That is some top trivia. Thank you. I think that was a very good addition. I don't think we should introduce this as a regular feature because I'll just embarrass myself. But thank you, John. I think you should definitely introduce it as a regular feature. I want to share the embarrassment among more individuals. (laughs) There's plenty to go around. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell people to listen and leave a rating and a review in the usual places. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. 